1: This is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, how to survive mid-life if you still think you're young with critic Miranda Sawyer and her book Out of Time. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about dirty dancing and ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And getting quick, this one's sure to sell out. Miranda Sawyer is a journalist and broadcaster. Having outlived magazines like Smash Hits, The Face and Select, she currently writes features and radio criticism for The Observer and her writing has also appeared in GQ, Vogue and The Guardian. She's a regular arts critic in print, on television and on radio. The author of Park and Ride, a book about suburbia. Her latest is Out of Time, Midlife, If You Still Think You're Young. Miranda, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about how this book came about then. What happened?
2: Well, I had a midlife crisis. (laughs) That's what happened. I think that's the technical term. So what happened was, I have two children, I had I had them late, you know, I, I didn't have them till I was in my late 30s, my first child I had when I was 38, and my second child I had her when I was 43, kind of, but late 43, nearly 44 actually, and when she was, I was lucky, you know, obviously I was lucky to have her, she was healthy, I was old and everything was fine, and I just began to do a kind of mental calculation as to how old I will be when she left school given that they have to stay till they're 18 now which is Mm -hmm. just unbelievable and then you know she wanted to go to university and it just was I was obviously going to be in my 60s and it made me panic because what it made me realise was it brought death crashing towards me and I started doing what I call death maths in the book, which is basically you start working out how long you've got to live and what you should be doing with it. And if you're bringing up kids, obviously, that limits your possibilities. And so that made me panic. I wrote an article about that for The Observer, and they very kindly ran it, and it was fine. And then I thought, well, that should help. And it just didn't help, you know. I mean, basically I thought it would have cured it, and it didn't cure it. Because, you know, one of the things about writing is that, with journalism anyways, if you're interested in something or obsessed by something, you can investigate it and shape it into a feature. And that often not kills your obsession, but helps it, you know. And I thought by writing about it in this article, I would be cured of my midlife crisis. And I wasn't, and it carried on. So I tried to write a book about it, but because I was in the middle of it, it was very difficult. And it took me a lot longer than I kind of meant to. So it took me about three years to write mm-hmm. it. But there it is. It is, you know, I can bang it on the table. Now, here it is. This is my book. I'm going to bang it there. That's my midlife crisis, just in there. I mean, book form, 262 pages of book form of midlife crisis.
1: Now, we should establish before we go on that this is obviously a podcast that's going on the internet. And mm. internet comment is obviously a competitive sport. And yeah. this book is it's sort of the epitome of a... Uh, first world problem, isn't it? You have a pretty comfortable
2: life. Yeah, of course, but I mean, you know, first world problems are first world problem. A podcast is a first world thing, you know. And the completely legitimate attack on this book is stop moaning and get on with your life. But you know, we are told that, especially British people, Mm -hmm. we are told that from the moment we are born until the moment we die, stop moaning and get on with your life. Now, personally, I agree quite a lot with that, but sometimes you end up in a kind of existential pain and if you don't acknowledge that if you squash it down, that doesn't do you any good. Now, of course I'm aware I've got an entirely privileged life. I mean, I say, you know, I say it in my book, but to have an entirely privileged life doesn't mean that you are always happy mm-hmm. with that entirely privileged life. And if you aren't happy it almost makes it worse if you know you should be happy you know I mean there's thousands of people that go to therapy and sit down in front of a therapist and go I don't know why I'm here my life's all right really it's kind of a bit like that it's very very common to have a dip in happiness in your middle years in fact they've done a lot of research about it and from across a lot of societies and not just western societies either there's a big dip in happiness and it tends to be in your 40s because generally if you have you know a first world life you will be living to 80-ish if you're a bloke maybe a little bit older maybe if you're a woman if you're lucky and you've eaten kale and you've looked after yourself then you can push it a few few years later so the middle of your life is your 40s and a lot of people have a dip in happiness there it's been established that essentially you're very happy when you're very young and you're very happy when you're very old and in the middle there is a dip and if you ask Psychotherapists, the amount of people that turn up on their doorstep age 43 or 47, there are loads. And it's because they are unhappy. And so it's all very well saying, you've got a great life, what's the problem? But if you don't deal with those unhappiness, then actually you have ye olde midlife crisis. If you you don't deal with your unhappiness, you will run off with somebody unsuitable. Maybe this sounds great to people, I don't know. But you can run off, you know, you can jack the whole of your life in, in a kind of entirely reckless move, because you don't look at your unhappiness, because you don't look at your fears, Mm -hmm. and you just go, you know what? It's not me, it's my life, so I'll just chuck it all in. And I think actually it's probably you.
1: So what is it about that? I want to talk about the, a bit more about the science. There are, I you mean, know, there are psychologists who think that there's no such thing as midlife yeah, crisis as well. But what you've just described as that sort of midlife dip is is a physiological thing that happens, and it's been studied in chimpanzees and orangutans. Yes, as poor well. chimpanzees
2: and orangutans—they suffer from it. They look over at these young chimpanzees and orangutans and have an attack of loss of potential. But it is established. It's like a. I mean, you know, it sounds weird because it's an existential problem, as in. It happens because you exist, but it's also an existential problem because it's like existentialism, so it's quite hard to get to grips with.
1: And it's become a cliché, right? Yeah. When you think of somebody having a midlife crisis there's you know somebody in their mid-40s they buy the harley they get the earring they get a much younger girlfriend
2: it's like describing all indie bands as skinny blokes in jeans who play guitars now that's true Mm -hmm. but it's kind of not true is it that's like a completely reductive idea of what indie music is and for me to say to you a midlife crisis is when a bloke splits up with his wife and goes off with somebody younger now there are plenty of people that that happens to these things occur but that's not actually what they feel like when they're doing they don't feel like they're acting like a cliche they feel like they're acting according to some truth you Mm -hmm. know these are the symptoms that you see if somebody starts dressing younger or gets weird piercings or tattoos or changes their life in a way then we can snigger all we want you know somebody gets botox it's it's really easy to laugh at those people but those are the symptoms of a kind of pain that actually exists inside and it's also something that i think british people do if we laugh at something It's because we're nervous around it, and it tells me it exists. Every time, when I was researching this book, and I would say to people, you know, just after a while I just started saying it, just to see what they react. and I'd go, I'm writing a book about midlife crisis. And they would all laugh, everyone would laugh, in a kind of nervous way and they go, "Oh, interview me, or "Oh, I could tell you about it, interview him. And as soon as if you start saying that to people and you actually have a proper conversation with them, you realise that actually most people are having some kind of second thoughts about their life or some kind of panic about something... And they might not be acting in that cliched way. Or maybe they are and you look at them you think, look at you, you're entirely cliched. But it doesn't feel like that's them. It feels like a real thing.
1: You mentioned in the book, you know, you had the sort of classic thoughts of just running away and leaving your husband and children. Obviously, you don't do that. But at the same time, there was an outlet in that you wrote a book about it. Yeah. I mean, how else could you have dealt with this, do you think?
2: Well, I think I think generally in life, I mean, by the time you're in your 40s, you have your Preferred outlets I mean, and a very obvious way that people deal with getting to their 40s is they get fit i mean there's a classic. The classic thing to do is if you look at somebody and they deny having a midlife crisis, just ask them if they 've got a new bike. If they've bought a new bike and they start taking it a bit more seriously than they used to, then that is a symptom of a kind of midlife malaise because what you're doing is essentially realising you have less time left, you need to be fitter in order to make that time work. So you take up cycling, because cycling is pretty much something that everybody can do, and gradually you take it more seriously. And people like Nike genuinely, I mean, this is genuinely part of their kind of ethos now, cycling is the new golf, as far as they're concerned. And what that means is that it's also a kind of legitimate way... If you're in a long-term relationship and say you're a bloke in a long-term relationship and you say to your wife, you know what, on Sunday I'm going to do absolutely sweet FA, I'm going to sit on my arse and scratch my balls and watch football from nine in the morning until five in the afternoon. Do you think that your partner will let you do that? No, they won't. But if you say, you know what, darling, I'm going out from nine in the morning till five in the afternoon and be training or I'll be racing with my mates, then it's kind of a legitimate way to get out of the tediousness of kind of chores in the home, you know. Those things are a way of dealing with it, and we can laugh about them. I think most of the things about midlife, you can kind of laugh about them, but they're also sad at the same time, and that's what I've tried to unpick in the book. And there are other ways of dealing with it. You know, I'm not, you know, I can't make music, I can't really draw or anything like that, but if you've got any form of kind of artistic outlet, mm-hmm. then that's a way of expressing things isn't it you know you can put them down the reason why i started writing was because i was in a right old mess that's what i do if it was something i was good at chiseling maybe i would have chiseled a beautiful (laughs) sculpture but that's not what i do i write and it was you know when i was writing the book for a long time i was getting up in the morning and writing down stuff that was in my head and i'd look at it a week later even now and i just think oh you can't use any of that but then i wrote so much that towards the end of the book, I found an entire chapter I hadn't realised I'd written, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I put it in because it was kind of fine. So it was a, it's a way of um, working your way through it. I think. I mean, I would always re- recommend writing to anybody. Actually, if you feel really confused, there's something about writing it down that orders your thoughts and kind of calls on the gods to you know to try and help you if you just write it down and even if you never look at it again there's something about that organization of your thoughts swirling around in your head that just gets them out there and it makes you feel better
1: or if you're too lazy for that make a radio show it's even easier
2: (laughs) it would talk to people that's part of it isn't it you know I mean part of what I did was literally I'd sit down you know if I'd gone to an award ceremony for work And you have to sit next to people you don't know. And they were my age, they'd ask me what I'm doing, and I'd say, I'm writing a book about midlife crisis, just to see what they would say, and the amount of people that would talk to you about it. It's just loads. I'm Emma Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resoners
0: FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: In a bit, I want us to go back and look at the 90s, I guess, yeah. is, is the shorthand for it. But first of all, so the, the period of time in your life before you started having these thoughts, but I wanted to establish, first of all, when did you first feel like a grown-up, for want of a better word?
2: I'm not sure that I do now. That's the problem, isn't it, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're young, when you're a kid, you look at grown-ups and, you know, obviously they get on your nerves and you don't really want them to interfere with your life but you assume that they know what they're doing, don't you? And the problem is that when you get to that age you think, well, I know certain things, you know like I might be able to roast a chicken and I can park a car now but, you know, there's quite a lot of stuff about being a grown-up that I'm really bad at and a lot of it is to do with patience I don't, I'm don't. i not a naturally patient person. I'm quite impatient. And so to realise that you and only you in this room, this adult, you are the adult and the ceiling has fallen in and you have to make the phone calls to sort it out and you have to clean up the rubble and you have to find a builder that will come round. I mean, these are things that, for me, are, like, insurmountable. I just don't know how you do it and you have to do it. Nobody teaches you how to do that or how to sit on the phone to BT for an hour and a half, which I have done, just to get them to get the Wi-Fi to work. I mean... God, even listening it makes me want to punch the table. But your adult life is full of that rubbish. And you're meant to be able to deal with it. I mean, that's all the stuff. You know, people go, oh, it's bills. And, like, bills are bills, you know. You can set up a direct debit for that. It's all the other stuff. You know, the gate stops working. You get someone to mend it and then it stops working again. I mean, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> adulthood is rubbish. And I'm not very good at it.
1: <laughs> what about kids, though? I mean, how much do you think having children is part of this sort of existential issue because again you know i don't have children and i'm very much a it's classic you know 45 year old teenage boy you know i play computer games and enjoy superhero movies now and then and again i'm wearing clothes too young for me and i think if i had children while in reality that probably wouldn't stop it feels like it should
2: it wouldn't stop because i don't think those things matter That actually having kids what matters about that is you love them, which is the bit—the big deal, and you try not to kill them. I mean, that's essentially what it is with children. It doesn't really matter what you wear. You might start having a bit of an existential crisis about whether you should be wearing a cartoon T-shirt, but actually that doesn't really matter. That's fine. Those aren't the big bits. What children do, though, is they give you a, an odd sense of time. So they squash time together... Because when they start you know when they're little and you know you're given this child that you have to look after they once they start doing stuff for themselves, you remember doing it yourself it's really odd like they'll line up trains in the line and you have a massive flashback to doing exactly the same thing and you think, "Oh my God, and that was like over forty years ago, and it's just there like right in the forefront of your of your mind and you think, "Oh my God, I used to do that, or you look at your parents in a different way, and it really they stretch time and they push it together in a way that makes you conscious of how how old you are or what the time that you've spent because you see somebody going through stuff that you've done yourself it reminds you you know it brings you straight back to your own childhood I think and they do because they change there is an element of you that you think you don't change but of course you change all the time as well and that comes from being a child as well so you looked at adults and you thought they were unchanging but of course they're not we change all the time it's just that for some reason in our heads there's a lot of events that we feel like we have to go through and then we hit adulthood say about Thirty-five, And we think that we're going to be the same looks-wise, taste-wise, everything-wise, until we drop dead at 70. You know, there's a kind of... We have no sense that we should be progressing at this point. So to realise that you don't look the same at 45 as you do at 35 is quite a shock, or Mm -hmm. 55, 45. Those things kind of um, change your attitudes towards it, and children really heighten it. Plus, the thing that I find hard about kids, generally is they once they start going to school they impose a routine on you and I'm very naturally freelance you know I've been freelance for a long time and that's my natural way of going about things so I like to organise my day in a kind of freelance style and if you have children you have to get them to school that is impossible because Mm -hmm. they have to go to school at the same time every day and you have to pick them up at the same time every day and you feed them and that routine if it isn't your natural way of going about things is a proper killer because it makes time go really fast and it's really frustrating and that is a lot of what adult life is with kids. You know, it's not all the other stuff that kind of does your head in. It's just the fact that you have to be there a certain place every day at a certain time, pick them up from football, take them over here, do this. It just drives you nuts. And maybe that's just, maybe I'm a bit pathetic that it does wind me up, but it does wind me up, you know?
1: Well, I think that... Right there is the definition of, of a grown up, you know, yeah, having, you, to, having you do to do it. that routine constantly.
2: Yeah, and you have to do it, you know, why would you not do it? Because, you, you know, your kids are only little, they can't get themselves to school you, I mean, you know, one of them probably could now, but the five year old, it would be a bit unfair, <laughs> you know, it's just to cross a very major road to get there. So you have to, you know, suck it up, which is part of it. But while you're sucking it up, you know, and my life is relatively happy, you know, mostly I'm a happy person. You know while you 're sucking up, you have a very strong sense that your life is passing. the days are long, but your life is short, and how you spend your days is how you spend your life so that is you have a sense of time rushing you know, and that 's quite tricky to deal with because we all know that as you get older, you get less fit you 're not able to do so many things you know so you feel very strongly that whatever you whatever it, i don 't know what you want to call it potential, you know your potential, your remaining unrealized potential. It will remain unrealised, you know, and that's quite a hard thing to suck up, but suck it up, you must. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Miranda Sawyer. We're talking about her book, Out of Time, Midlife, If You Still Think You're Young. And Miranda, I mentioned we were going to go back to the 90s in the first part. As well as this book being about midlife crisis in general and your own midlife crisis, it's also autobiographical in a lot of ways. And yeah, there's this period of time where you were first working, where you you went through those magazines I mentioned at the beginning, um, Smash It, Select... And the face, all of which I was reading back in those days. were were really great. Those, they, they certainly were. So were. Great. And, um, and I do, this is a bit, this bit's going to be a bit self indulgent because I do particularly love that period of time. And one of the joys of doing Little Atoms over the years is speaking to and meeting so many of the uh, the music journalists whose work I used to enjoy in that point. So basically, I want to spend some time talking about that period of time where. And I guess I was going to say when you were happy, but uh, that's not really <laughs> I am fair. happy
2: now. Listen, in,
1: listen. <laughs> in the period of time before the responsibilities, the yeah. 90s.
2: Well, I mean, I wanted to write about that because what I realised when I was feeling down, when I was having this kind of whatever you want to call it, an existential crisis, a midlife crisis, a dip in happiness, then I was thinking, okay. This, on one level, this is a kind of classic trope, isn't it? This happens, we all know about it. it. It happened to people in the 1930s, probably happened to people hundreds of years before that. It's a kind of dip. Then it's also happening to me. That's very mm-hmm. personal. So there's a kind of big story and a little story, but actually there's a generational story as well. Yeah. And I wanted to, to unpick that. So what I wanted to find out was, what is it like to be middle-aged when you had your youth in your pump? <laughs> in the 90s because that was a particular time for youth culture. Now obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at different eras when youth culture were in, was incredibly dynamic and I think that youth culture generally is dynamic, but you know, the 60s is an obvious example, but the thing that happened in the 90s that was really interesting was the alternative culture and by that I mean kind of certain types of indie music or rave music or art or kind of models even, you know, uh, films. For some reason something happened and they went into the mainstream. And they started making loads of money, and everybody liked them. People who you would not expect to like this kind of stuff really liked it, and that didn't used to happen before. So if you like the Smiths, a lot of people like the Smiths, but there was a, it was only a certain amount of the population, say. And so in the late 80s, if you liked house music or the Smiths it was, or you know something on the edge, it stayed on the edge, and then something happened in the 90s, and it just all went into the centre, and it became what people looked at and everybody liked everybody liked Oasis. Everybody thought Kate Moss was brilliant. Everybody loved the train spotting. You know, these things just kind of took over. So what you felt, as somebody who was involved in that youth culture, you felt, what you felt was we are right. We've got it right. We are right and our taste is right and our way of going about life is right and we will be right. And so a lot of people I mean it's a massive cliche, but it did happen. People would go to nightclubs and they would jack in their jobs. And they would decide that they don't want to work in a factory. They don't want to follow their dad's business or whatever. They don't want to train for years to be a doctor. They're going to do something different. They're going to make T-shirts. They're going to start their own club. They're going to start their own band. They're going to start writing about music. And a lot of people went out and they did that. And it was fine and it worked. You know, there was a lot of great magazines. There's a lot of outlets. And it worked in the 90s. And so you felt like this is it. We've done it right. We've got a new way of working and it's going to be fine. And then basically a few things happened. But the main thing that happened was the internet. So the internet came along, and those creative industries were, particularly the music industry, was they were completely ripped apart. And it had, you know, I'm a music journalist. Can you imagine? Music was completely music shattered. And journalism journalism. <laughs> is like completely screwed. So this kind of new way of living that you thought was going to offer you an interesting and fulfilling career was kind of ripped up in front of your eyes. Really, you know, there are people I know who work for a particular broadsheet who were brought into an office, photographers and writers and so we all think you know, we think you're really, really brilliant, you're absolutely fantastic, we're gonna halve your rates. Like you just had to get on with it, you know, and these are people who had, you know, their lives to kind of get on with. And also there's another factor which is all that kind of stuff is really brilliant when you're young, but it's much harder to maintain when you're in your forties. It's hard to remain excited about stuff, but it's also just physically hard if you're a comedian or a DJ to be driving up and down the motorway in the middle of the night you know that's an incredibly enticing job when you're in your 20s and actually really not so enticing when you're in your 40s if you're still doing it for 150 quid a time that's quite tough you know if you've got a mortgage to pay and and kids to feed and all that stuff and you're just really tired you know so there's something about that that i wanted to unpick what it's like to have really believed in youth culture and youth culture to have offered you a fantastic life and then still to be doing that in your 40s so let's
1: talk about your part in it then so it's <laughs> interesting I was going to say earlier that that narrative that you talk about the idea that you know suddenly we were right suddenly mm-hmm. alternative culture won in that period of time and you know there was loads of other stuff going on there was called Britannia Blair and Euro 96 and all of those yeah. things that were going on and that the sort of slightly embarrassing things to look back on, the lad culture and, yeah. and all that sort of Yeah, nonsense. I don't
2: include Chris Evans in that. Chris no, Evans no, no. was never my kind of guy.
1: <laughs> but all that stuff was going on and I thought the sort of accepted narrative of that was for, I mean, certainly for me, who at that time was a consumer, you yourself were part of that milieu, but yeah. to us the narrative was, that's when it all went wrong in mm. the alternative music that we loved and clung to our hearts became popular and that was like bad
2: yeah well it's quite interesting I think because actually there's a lot of people involved in those kind of industries and I think of certain people who just they really wanted to make it I would say Damon (laughs) Albarn's a classic kind of person Kate Moss is a classic person actually Um, the Gallagher brothers there's a lot of people they just really really wanted to make it and what happened Jarvis classic so what happened is they made it they absolutely made it but when they did make it it's really different playing to that larger audience and it happens very quickly without you noticing. So one minute you're making jokes that basically your mates and mates of mates will understand and the next minute you're making that joke and it's the Brit Awards and everybody's looking at you and you're suddenly, you know, being arrested for offending Michael Jackson. And it was hard for people because mm-hmm. what they realized, I mean Blur are a very classic example. So complete, you know, really indie, they have massive hits and then they deliberately turn their back on it because they can't cope They thought they wanted it. Well, Damon and Alex definitely wanted it. And they couldn't cope. You know, it basically gave Graham a nervous breakdown. And actually, weirdly, it gave Damon a nervous breakdown. He thought he wanted it. And then you get there and you realise it's quite much more crass than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be fine and it's really not as nice. And so they retreat and go back into the alternative sides. But that time did change things, you know, because if you look at things like just the way the investment in night culture that happened mm. is really really important you know because you know i came to london in 88 and if you wanted to go out and you didn't want to go to a nightclub you had to go to bar italia till two in the morning, or some awful crackdown underneath a dodgy kind of taxi firm they were the only places to go but now you it is expected that you'll be able to drink all night mm. and that was a deliberate decision because rave culture was taking all the money away from the drinks industry and so going out is absolutely what everybody does now. They eat all, eat out, they all go out. And that came out of the 90s. That didn't happen before that because people suddenly realised that actually people wanted to go out. And alternative culture also is now catered for. We've got things like Six Music, you know. And what's been realised is that if you have a certain kind of taste, it used to be thought that, say, you had a certain taste of pop music then what would happen somehow is you would lose that taste you'd hit Mm -hmm. 35 and you want to listen to you know dire straits in the old days or Michael, you know michael buble now i suppose and that doesn't happen you know i can't go and watch a mainstream kind of blockbuster film because i hate them and i can't listen to radio 2 during the day because i can't stand the music so you don't really change but part of the mainstream is catered for you now six music caters for you glastonbury you know glastonbury Paul Morley says in this brilliant article, I can't remember a couple of years ago about Glastonbury festivals in general. They're like cruises, like going on a cruise. So basically, you go and you, you know, you quite like these. You're not sure. So you go on a cruise on a cruise version of like these gigs. You turn up, you sample everything, and it's fantastic for a couple of week a weekend, and then you go home. And those kind of festivals didn't exist. You're catered for amazingly now mm-hmm. because we won at that time and you can say it was a really bad thing and tabloid culture was awful and thank you know TFI Friday was awful which it was but the rest of it actually did quite a lot of good things I think it made people able to go out and it brought a kind of democracy to going out it wasn't just you know really posh people who could join a I don't know what do you call them a drinking club Mm -hmm. kind of thing you know pay extra money so you could drink late it that doesn't happen now you can go out whenever you want now and that's right and proper I think so there is an element of it that I'm still really proud of it's fine and okay people might think it became commercialized but actually it changed generally changed people's lives for the better.
1: I'm Lee Rourke you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture. So tell us about working during that period of
2: time. Yeah it was great.
1: (laughs) What do you want to know it was really good fun. (laughs) Well I guess eventually I want to get us to a Need to tell the story about Grace James. But oh, I then, can
2: tell you any stories Give me some. some you know, anecdotes. self-indulgent
1: anecdotes <laughs> about, about working as a pop journalist in the 1990s.
2: Well, it was. I mean, I suppose it was a time when there was a lot of money sloshing around in the in the music industry and actually mm. in the magazine industry. And so, because they were selling CDs, so what happened was people were replacing their vinyl with CDs, and those CDs cost a lot of money. And you know, due to record companies horrible contracts. The artist would get £1 and the record company would get £14. So there was a, like amazing party. I remember going to a ridiculous party for Bros when I first arrived in London for, in Smash Hits and it was in the Canadian Embassy in Kensington on like three floors or something. And you walked in and they had cakes in every shape of the world. They had a vodka ice sculpture, which I'd never seen before. They had sake, which i had never tasted before. And, you know, I mean, it was full of people... I don't even know if bros were there. But it was like a massive, massive party. And you got sent home in cabs and, and, you know, pet shop boys parties with full carousels. And it was just brilliant. I'd never seen anything like it. And I'll tell you what it was like. It was like this. So in order to get say a double page spread in Smash Hits if you wanted an advert it would cost a lot of money so what people wanted to do was get editorial because also people (laughs) would read it so I remember doing a piece on Sydney Youngblood which you will probably not remember him but basically his records went oh yeah and they were kind of pretty rubbish and he went to Brazil and I did the interview with Sydney Youngblood in the airport in Heathrow I did my interview before we even got on the plane then we got on the plane and we spent six days in Brazil (laughs) <laughs> and I, you know, went to Rio for a couple of day, four days, and we went to Sao Paulo for a couple of days, and I went to some really mad kind of DJing competitions. That's the main thing. I mean, we went to this DJ competition where Sydney Youngblood had to judge it. And it was really hot. I was completely overwhelmed. Never been anywhere like Brazil before in my life. And I remember the person that won, he won because he took off his wooden leg and scratched with his wooden leg. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. But I mean, I was completely naive. We were staying in these swanky hotels, and I'd do things like open the window and get stung by mosquitoes all night because I didn't realize you were meant to shut it and switch the aircon on. I was just a baby, really.
1: You talk in the book about you know, going off on assignments and then mm. just Staying not out. going home. Basically. Yeah, I never
2: went home. So what happened was you used to go... like Say you got a trip to go and interview Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine in LA. Then what you do is try and get an open return. So you'd fly out there, you'd interview them, you'd try and file the piece while you were there and then you just stay out and see what happened. And actually that was quite often quite useful so i did an interview with um sean Ryder, which eventually I, I kind of won an award for and it was the one where the happy mondays had just finished well they were kind of in the middle of mixing uh yeah <laughs> yes please and this is the the one where they kind of went off to uh barbados because they thought it would be they didn't want to go to go to miami because they thought it was too druggy. and basically sean got a massive crack habit while i was out there And he hadn't told anybody about it, but he did tell me. And the reason why he told me, essentially, was i just hung about for ages. So I went to New York. I thought Sean was really good fun, which he was. And then, you know, we took photos, we hung out, and he just wouldn't talk. He didn't want to do the interview. And so I just hung out for ages. I went to clubs. I kept inviting him to clubs. He didn't want to go to clubs. And then eventually he did the interview. And that wouldn't have happened if i hadn't stayed for five days i don't think because mm-hmm. you would just avoided it and you got on the plane and gone home but i just waited around until he said okay i'll tell you everything and we well, didn't even say that it's not really like that he just sat down and every question i asked he answered and it turned out he got a massive crack habit in barbados and <laughs> and you know bez had equally got a massive crack habit in barbados but managed to come off it and uh, and that turned into quite a big piece so i think that partly the hanging out was quite good really and also it was an opportunity you know i didn't when i was younger i was like most people you know we didn't travel that much we weren't camping in rainy places in england for our holidays we didn't go anywhere you didn't go on airplanes or anything so to be offered a job where you got on an airplane and flew for ages to america and then you're allowed to go to new york or la or all these places of course you wanted to say you couldn't believe Mm -hmm. it you know it was brilliant
1: it'd be nice if we were doing this Interview in a Los Angeles. Yeah, wouldn't it wouldn't just? It? But they no, don't they do, that do that
2: now because because a <laughs> you can Skype people, I suppose. But also, you know, once the record industry contracted and there's less money then what happens is they use somebody who lives in LA of course Mm. why would they not do you know there's plenty of brilliant writers out there you don't need to send some jumped up writer from Britain over there to do it but at the time they did it was brilliant
1: perhaps it wouldn't have collapsed so quickly if they had been doing that all the time exactly
2: if they hadn't but I did pay for you know if I stayed longer I did pay for my own hotel room I didn't claim it or anything
1: you talk about in the book uh, about the period of time you worked at the face as well and that seems particularly interesting because again really anything when yeah in terms of what you could write
2: yeah I was there and when did I work at The Face so it must have been the the mid-90s I suppose and The Face was very strong then I think all magazines when they're really strong they can you can count, they can write about anything because they know what the magazine is so you can really write about anything they just do it in that way so you know, Vogue is a very strong magazine, for instance, and you can kind of write about anybody because you will do it in a Vogue way. And there were at that time, there were certain magazines very strong. The Face was very strong and Loaded was very strong. You could just do things and it would do it in that way. And so The Face, you know, did David Beckham, did The Spice Girls, did all these people that aren't very face but did them in a Face way and it worked. And, you know, I used to walk in and say, I want to do a feature on roller coasters and they go, yeah, fine, off you go. Uh, or you go, "I did for some reason I did... Uh, Feature on posh students in Edinburgh. I can't even remember why I did that one, but I did. You know, I went up there and hung out with these quite, really quite wealthy kids in Edinburgh and wrote about them. I don't even know why. And, you know, a, a friend of mine, Gavin Hills, he would go off and write about football hooligans, but also, you know, kind of serious things about Sarajevo, you know. So you could kind of do whatever you liked, really. But there was a pretentiousness to the face that I used to really like. So we would have these meetings that went on for ages and were really ridiculous and slightly drove you mad. And we would decide things like, what we'll do is wallpaper and we'll get stars to design wallpaper. So Björk, we got Björk to design a piece of wallpaper and put it in the middle of the magazine. It's just pathetic. And I think we thought everyone would buy loads of magazines and then wallpaper their wall with Björk wallpaper. It's just completely ridiculous. And one of the things that did happen was, I remember we my I was sharing a flat with my two flatmates and one of them got... Tomb Raider is a, a video game I'm not no good at video games but I would sit and he got it and it was really I thought it was really interesting and I really enjoyed watching it it was like watching a brilliant film and we were going to put Gillian Anderson on the cover and I remember phoning up Richard Benson and go, we shouldn't do Gillian Anderson no way no way no way we need to do Lara Croft this is what we need to do. And because it was the face, we went, yeah, all right. <laughs> so we did it. And we and it was like the cartoon version of Lara Croft. It wasn't a real person or anything. It was like she was when you played the game. And she was on the front looking like Lara Croft. And inside, she was in, like, Gucci and, you know, LV and everything like that. Kind of I, she was I in remember weather. that issue. Yeah, and it was, like, a massive deal, I remember. But, like, it just seemed really obvious. because it, And it's a great cover. Mm-hmm. She looked really good. And, you know, God love Julian Anderson. She's a brilliant... You know, she's a brilliant actress, but she could not compete with Lara Croft at that time.
1: So to finish off this part, there's an anecdote in the book about you hanging out with Grace Jones. Yes. Yeah. Would you that. like me to tell yeah, my anecdote do. of
2: Grace Jones? Okay. So this is quite recent, really. It was definitely. I'll tell you when it was. It was the day that the Lehman Brothers collapsed. <laughs> that's when it was. So when is that? That's two thousand and. Eight, Something like that. Yeah. I think it's 2008. And what happened was she had brought out... Uh, you know, for after a quite a long time in the wilderness, she'd brought out an album, and I was terrifically excited to go and interview her. And so I met her manager in a place called Julie's Wine Bar, which is a really twinkly kind of long-established restaurant in Notting Hill with... It's got fairy lights and kind of small rooms. Anyway... <laughs> A manager's called Brendan and I sat with Brendan and you know, she just didn't turn up for hours. So we had a lovely meal and a nice chat and eventually after about three and a half hours she turned up and she was Grace Jones. She was Grace Jones personified. She was amazing. She wasn't as tall as you think, but she was very Grace Jones. She's really physical, hilarious, didn't really eat anything, maybe a couple of oysters, drank loads of red wine, smoked in the restaurant which drove the waiters mad and then kept sending them away and kept howling at the at the kind of moon she would go oh ooh, ooh, i feel horny like this <laughs> she was absolutely amazing anyway we finished the meal and we went to the bar and brendan disappeared for some reason i don't know where he went but anyway she paid for the meal which no, i can tell you now no pop stars do that they just don't do that she paid for the meal in cash whacked it down and she ordered some sambuca for me and her and she biffed it and she went father son and holy ghost and kind of biffed it and then she basically snogged me which was such a shock (laughs) it was just a massive shock because she's grace jones and she snogged me and she grabbed my tit as well and uh she said i feel horny come to my hotel room." that's making it sound like italian i can't really explain what her accent's like but it's quite like roly, like that and uh and I obviously laughed and thought... And I did think, should I? And I thought, well, no, there's... Some, I mean, how... That's just the most intimidating offer I've ever had in my life. So, well, I, maybe in all time, let's go home to my child. And she said, well, take my number. And she said, file it under... Grrr. So I've still got her number under... Grrr, but I've never dared dial it. And then we went downstairs and we went outside. And she just... She's so brilliant. It was like a Monday night in Notting Hill. And she just ran down the road with her arms out, howling at the moon. So, just brilliant. And... I remember thinking, you are fantastic. And the next day, I thought, I bet they phoned me up and say, can you not put that in? And they didn't. That's how cool she is. Because any loads and loads of people now, their PR or their manager would phone up and go, you know what, could you not put that in? And you'd kind of argue with them, but maybe you would and maybe you wouldn't. And they just thought, no, they don't care. Did it go in? Yeah, of course it man. Yeah. It's my, yeah. God, you do, you, there's no way I'm not putting that in. I'm living off that anecdote for the rest of my life. It definitely went in, yeah.
1: to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Miranda Sawyer about her book Out of Time and Miranda we should go back to the midlife crisis and throughout the book you talk about various sort of common things or, or areas of life that can be affected in middle age and change so I want to talk about some of those things I guess the first thing is that we hate it when our friends become successful Let's yeah talk about envy
2: status envy yeah so i had one of the things that really started affecting me and it's incredibly appalling to admit to but i started getting jealous of people and what i what i felt like had happened is i felt like we'd all been the same and we'd all been similar and then i kind of felt like i turned away and i looked back and suddenly people i knew were on like six figure salaries and they seemed to be living in three stories houses with kind of lovely kitchens out the back and like gardens and stuff and I just genuinely didn't know how they'd done it you know you know I quite like maths I'm not you know one of those people who's bad with money I'm not really bad but I just don't seem to have accumulated any (laughs) and and I kind of like was looking around and thinking well what's a what's weird about that is if you were really worried about money If I was really worried about money, then I wouldn't have been a music journalist for a start. Mm -hmm. I'd have been a lawyer. I did a law degree. I'd have been a lawyer, right? So I can't be that worried about money, or I would have been a lawyer. So to then find myself envious of people with money was kind of appalling to me. But it was true, you know, I'd look around. And I think, you know, London obviously doesn't help. If you live in London, there's people with a lot of money, but also everything's really expensive, you know. So... Maybe if I was born in a different era, I would be able to afford... You know, mm-hmm. we live in a flat. It's a lovely flat, but we have no garden. But we would be, maybe we would be able to afford a house with a garden. But it's just the time that we live in, you know. We can't really do that. So I, just, I was kind of disappointed with myself. But it's very common. And one of the other things that I talk to people about, which I hadn't really realised because I don't get strongly affected by this, but other people do, is a kind of envy that is engendered by Facebook. And uh, I spoke to a couple of psychotherapists who said, look honestly, Facebook comes up in the, in people's sessions really quite a lot, and that's because generally in Facebook, you know, most people our age are putting up stuff that they're happy with. So you know, my kids got great results, or you know, my garden's looking lovely, or Ooh, I won an award, or you know, I'm having a great night out, and that's fab. But what that means is that if you're feeling a bit low you feel even lower because mm-hmm. you look around and you think oh, I'm just crap and everyone's having a great time but what you're doing essentially is judging your insides by their outside so they're putting stuff out and you're f- judging how you're feeling by that outward indicator and that's completely natural because it's you know how do you judge people if you walk down the road all the time you're judging people by appearances so if somebody looks really drunk and there's like three or four blokes who are really drunk I will cross the road and that's because I'm judging them but they might be lovely but I'm judging them by mm-hmm. their appearances so you judge people by their appearances all the time and social media offers a way of giving you those appearances in a way that can make you feel completely crap you mm-hmm. feel like i failed
1: well, they do call it a status update yeah exactly
2: that's it you know that's why it's like. absolutely about status and there is a lot of status involved in middle age i mean there's a lot of status involved in, ad- in in kind of adults and kids anyway but you know there's literally when you talk to people you can hear the status update when they're talking to you so they you know there's nothing wrong with it but they're kind of establishing their stake in society by saying how well they're doing and if you're feeling a bit low which obviously I was at the time you just feel like I've just been really rubbish. I've done it all wrong there's a major feeling in middle age you just think I've done it all wrong oh my god I've done it all wrong I need to go back and start again and do I need to go to art college that's what I should have done I was convinced I should have gone to art college or been a lawyer I mean these ridiculous things you know I've done it all wrong I need to start again and you can't start again and those things are very strong in in middle age and they are also heightened by the fact that we live in a consumerist capitalist society so you are judged by how much stuff you've got by how great your house is, and what you've got in there and if you're not brilliant at things like acquiring you know we've got a lovely flat but it is a bit of a dump because we're not very good at DIY and we get really impatient with builders and decorators so you know it's not maintained particularly well because we'd rather go out so you know those kind of things you feel a little bit like you've failed you know when you go around people's houses you think oh my god it's so lovely here (laughs) and ours just isn't.
1: I mean you could have wrote the Madonna book. I
2: could have written the so I got offered a deal which seemed like a really great idea and it was to write a book about Madonna when she turned 50 and I got offered a lot of money for it and I said yes but what I realized quite soon was that I couldn't do it and the reason why I couldn't do it is because it's not what I'm good at so what I'm kind of good at if I'm good at anything is interviewing people who want to be interviewed and conveying what that interview is like to readers right that's my job and that's what I'm quite good at and I realized that Madonna did not want to be interviewed by me so I would have to chased down lots of people who were willing to be interviewed about her but you know but there would be people like old school friends I don't know people who worked with her when she was in her 20s it would be awful I'm just no good at that I'm no good at going through people's bins I'm not that kind of investigative reporter and plus my son was still really young and I just thought I just think I can't do this and so I had to have the money back and I remember having the meeting with the publishers they were really cross with me and I remember it, the meeting went so badly that I put my head on the table <laughs> And just said, I can't do this and had to hand the money back. Now if I'd taken that money, if I'd been less of a bloody idiot and it was able to write this stupid book, then we would have a house with a small garden or you know, some kind of patio that I could put shit pot pants in. But I didn't do it, you know, I knocked it back. And there's an also a part of your middle age where you just think, All oh, these opportunities I <laughs> have I completely messed up. That so I felt Unconfident. I had fear about doing it. You know, what I could have done is maybe written a really interesting book about Madonna that didn't interview anybody at all. But <laughs> I didn't have the confidence to do that. I didn't know how to do it. And... You just have to accept it. We would have had a patio if I'd done the bloody Madonna book. But I didn't. I couldn't work out how to do it. And I didn't do it. And you have to accept those things. You know, I had a lot of opportunities when I was younger. And I messed up quite a lot of opportunities because I just couldn't work out how to do it. And I think if you're not, if your career is quite haphazard, you know, nobody trained me to do this career. I don't have a journalism degree Mm -hmm. or anything. Then you don't, sometimes you don't recognise opportunities when they come or you're not taught how to do it. you know. So say I would have a column somewhere and then there would be a columnist lunch and I would go along, I'd be sitting next to the editor and somehow I just didn't quite get it right with the editor. I didn't get drunk enough, I didn't enough, tell enough funny stories, I didn't hang around long enough. <laughs> all these things that you're meant to do, which I just hadn't got a clue about. And so you blow it without even knowing that you've blown it. And we all do this. you know, We just all do this. You, you blow opportunities all the time. But when you're middle-aged, you think, oh man, if I'd done that, if I'd been able, you know, if I'd if I, I've had that Eton charm... I would have sailed through and been able to get on with everybody and it would all been fine
1: Mm Eat and charm and the connections
2: Yeah but I think there is something about being able to deal with people who are more powerful than you or older than you or you know situations where you feel uncomfortable that actually you know if you don't go to a school like that and I had a perfectly privileged upbringing but you know when I was in my 20s I was completely I had no idea how to talk to a lot of people editors and publishers and stuff I was just too chippy and scared and drunk probably so I couldn't deal with that
1: You mentioned keeping fit, buying a posh bike a couple of times already, but just your body in general and look, particularly how we look, is something, again, that really catches up on you how quickly that changes.
2: Yeah, it does, and I think this book is not particularly for men or women, but I think it can be tougher on women because they're expected to maintain a youthful look for longer. And, you know, I was quite interested to read an article the other day. It was really recently with uh, uh, Isabella Rossellini. Who just said that all the parts fell Mm -hmm. away for her between 45 and 60. And that's really interesting to me because there is a sense of that. You can feel it a little Mm -hmm. bit. That There's something about women at that age who look that age that seem quite intimidating to the general world. I don't know what it is, but it's like they don't... Because they're not sexually fanciable and um, but they're not old old they seem to be really intimidating people and i don't really know why that is but that's that's the truth but actually you know again with capitalism that's an area which is a massive growth so more people you know the kind of market of beauty products for people who are over 45 now is bigger than for under 45 it's massive and so there's even more pressure on you to kind of maintain a look and the weird thing is that what you find is if you're a woman and you use makeup say i've never been brilliant at makeup Uh, you know i'm just not that good at it i like it but i'm not brilliant at it that the makeup that you use when you're younger doesn't work anymore (laughs) and your hair looks all wrong and you know i know with blues it's is the same like either you feel like you're going bald or your hair like your hair texture changes (laughs) and your look just changes and it's a bit like okay so you have to think about how you present yourself because if you carry on how you with the way that you lived before, and I have, I absolutely think that people should wear exactly what they want. I have no problems with blokes go out in negligees and women go women go out in shell suits. I don't care what people wear. Express yourself how you want. It's completely fine. But when it comes down to you, you suddenly feel like okay, if you're quite casual, which I am naturally, then if I just get up and go and go out and take the kids out and they come back, I look really knackered and I look quite incapable now I might not be knackered and I'm completely capable but I look like I'm not so what do you do about that do I then have to spend hours making myself look like kind of you know I don't know Dolores Umbridge you know in order to be look like i can do my job it's kind of a weird thing to grapple with really because there is an element of you this thinks you know i've hit 35 and this is what i'm going to look like for ages and then suddenly i'm going to look old and that's not the case there's something about your body in your 40s your metabolism slows you can't you know it makes me laugh when i kind of you know some people i know carry on taking drugs in their 40s i can't eat a packet of haribos without like affecting my sleep you know i'm so wimpy now if I have, if we go out for a meal, I'm so used to eating early because I've got kids. If I go out for a meal, and so we have a meal, it starts at half eight, and we eat a starter, a main course, and a pudding, I feel like I'm going to die. It's like I can't deal with it. It's like appalling. And this is just food. It's not anything else. It's like your body kind of, um, it just starts doing stuff that you don't really
1: understand.
0: I'm Andrew Muller. Check out the growing Little Atoms Media Empire at littleatoms.com.
1: I want to go on to alcohol and drugs next yeah. and I mean again obviously from the you know the milieu that you worked in there was a lot of yeah. alcohol and drug taking of course all of that time but particularly once people get to middle ages is generally the point where you think okay well I did that now I Probably better start. However, it turns out that there's also, it doesn't happen
2: yet. No, there's an interesting (laughs) stat. I'm going to get the book and read this stat out because when I found these stats, it made me really, I was very shocked. Okay, these are the stats, the most, the saddest stats, I think. You know, there's a lot of really sad stats about divorce. Divorce is very common in your 40s. There's terrible stats about men who, there's a suicide Mm -hmm. leap in early 40s for men, which is very, very sad. But this I find really shocking. So, adults who are older than 45 are three times more likely than those under 45 to drink every day, right? Alcohol-related deaths in the 35 to 54-year-old age group has doubled in number between 91 and 2008. And this is the one that I was quite shocked at. The percentage of 45 to 55-year-olds who take Coke has doubled in a decade. And this is a real git one. Nearly a quarter of all drink and drug hospital admissions are of people in their 40s. That's a quarter. That's amazing. Yeah, and they, you know, you talk to people professional people who deal with these you know medical people and they call us an aging cohort and it's basically people who did that when they were younger and they carried on and they don't stop and they don't stop till somebody says you know what you're getting cirrhosis of the liver you're about to die and then some of them don't even stop then and there's also another weird kind of factor which again is completely understandable that you might have been somebody and there's plenty of people who lived through the 90s and didn't take any drug and that was fine they had a lovely time they just didn't take any drugs fine and then they hit their 40s and think you know what I forgot to take some drugs And so they can do really quite sweet things. I I know a couple of people think, right, I'm I'm going to take ecstasy and I'm going to go to a nightclub. And they do that and they have the most fantastic time of their life and it's absolutely brilliant. They do it three or four times and then they stop. But I also know people who, especially because you get tired in in your 40s and they have a job which involves them going out to a lot of award ceremonies and stuff like that. So they start taking coke and they never took it before. And within two or three years, they've got a raging proper coat habit that is annihilating their mortgage payments and they're using their company credit cards for it and they have to go into rehab. And it's quite, you know, it's quite shocking to me but how strongly we as a generation believe in drinking drugs. And we really, really do. You know, I mean, the reason I can't do it anymore, you know, I did it a lot when I was younger and that's fine and i have no moral objections to it i just can't do it anymore i can't bear the existential angst lasting for three days you know that's what i can't handle so i don't do it anymore (laughs) but i miss a kind of rush i miss the rush that you get from being young and being a bit twatted and maybe falling in love or going to a place you don't know and middle age is much steadier than that and i miss that rush that serotonin rush and so what i've and i look for it and what i found it in is I'm really rubbish at running but running very slowly around the park for some reason I don't know if it's years of raving goes straight to my serotonin button so I just get a big rush from it and you know I keep fit a little bit but actually I do it for that rush and I think that if you can't find that rush except in alcohol and drugs in your 40s it is Really dangerous. You've got to find it somewhere else. You know, just going out dancing without alcohol and drugs, or you know, enjoying you know an, an amazing sunset, or just something. You've got to find that rush somewhere else. Having sex, something that takes you out of those environments, because it genuinely it kills people, and it really does kill people that are our age. You know,
1: it's an obvious thing to say that you know time. We all perceive time differently, mm. and time goes faster as we get older. But I discovered from the book that you actually you do have this like synesthesia thing where where numbers you can see, and I do wonder how that itself plays into this idea of you being you know worried about age.
2: Yeah, I think it does a bit. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to call the book Out of Time was because obviously there's a sense that you've got shorter amount of time, and there's another factor which is it's a a Blur song I particularly like although Graham isn't on it. But there's another bit, and it's because I wanted to remove myself from the relentless march of time. I wanted to take myself out of time so that I could just have a bit of a moment to think about things. But time just keeps going on. And I have a thing, it's like a mild synesthesia, I think it's called, Where I see, well, I don't see numbers, but I know where they are. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you give me a number, I'll tell you where it is. And, you know, kind of 1 to 10 is down by my left and 10 and 20 is in front of me. And then 40 to 50 is kind of over to my right over here. And they are more stretched. I mean, I think it is affected by age they are much more stretched when they are between 1 and 20 than they are when they get old, when I get round. So what I've been trying to do is move the 40 to 50 round in front of me so I can stretch it out, but it won't budge. It's really annoying. It's been there for, you know, over 40 years to my right. So it's really hard for me to move it round. But you can change the way you think about time, and those things I think are really interesting. So a lot of the way we think about time is to do with where we grew up, the nationality we are. Mm -hmm. So if you read english or french or spanish you read from left to right so you tend to think that the past is on your left and the future is on your right and if you are israeli or if you're arabic then you tend to think that the past is on your right and the future is on your left because that's how you read and also you the way you think about time like we tend to think about english-speaking people tend to think about time as a term of distance you know a long roads left to go And if you are Spanish, you're more likely to think about it as a kind of volume, as like the amount of water in a glass. So once you know that, you realise that these are metaphors and these Mm -hmm. are habits. And so one of the things I found helpful is that I had a metaphor that was very strong in my head when I first started writing the book, and it was the idea that I climbed to the top of the mountain, it was downhill from now on, and that's it. And then I spoke to a friend, a a psychotherapist friend, and she she said, it's just a metaphor, change it. And I was like, right. Brilliant, I will change it. So now I try and think of myself on a rocket. And the rocket is just gonna go straight the way all the way up to the moon until I like you know, I die in a hail of fireworks. And you can just change your metaphor. You can once you investigate time and you realise how much of it is to do with language or how you see numbers or where you are, you can change that time. I mean you can still keep that I'm at the top of the mountain metaphor, but you can think of it like as a privilege. You're at the top Mm -hmm. of the mountain, you can see everything. You can see the future, you can see the past. You've got an amazing view of an entire life all around you what a privilege so you can change those ways of thinking and i found that actually one of the most helpful things that i did so there was a there was another kind of image that stayed with me very strongly and that was a chess game and i in my head the chess how it went was that i was at a party and i was having a brilliant time and somebody said let's play chess and i was like yeah fine and I, and i just thought i'll be fine at it you know and i'll just play it like how i want i won't think about it and i played i've played the chess game wasn't really concentrating and we will go out of the room and i come back and i look at the chessboard and i think oh oh i've done this a bit wrong really i've lost really vital pieces like a bishop and a couple of rooks and there's loads of pawns gone and i don't think i'm going to get what i think out of this and so i say to my opponent can we start again and they go no this is the game this is the game and so when I first and I read this metaphor and it was really strong in me and at the beginning of the book I found it really depressing I was like I've done it all wrong and this is the game and by the end of it I thought this is the game you've still got pieces on the board that's really lucky you, this is the game play the game how brilliant it's actually there's something really amazing about not having as many pieces and still having to play the game because you know all art is editing your reckless use of your, <laughs> of your kind of talents you chuck them all on you've got, still got a few left so play the game you know
1: Well, I wanted to wrap us up with the the sort of standard what did you learn, what can we do question. And you've really just done that. So just one aspect of that is, in this book you talk about, obviously you love music, Mm. that's been your career and, and your great love, but you talk about how you use music as well to to sort of deal with ages. So just finishes off by talking about that.
2: Well, I use all forms of art, actually, because I think the problem with middle age is that there's so many things to think about and so many of them are tedious. So, you know, you've got your job to think about, you know, if you have your family, you might have to think about them, your parents, you know, how you pay your bills. And, you know, you're constantly thinking about little boring rubbish that you have to do. I can't bear it. And the way to stop doing that is to take advantage of the art that is offered to you. So, you know, we have amazing free galleries. You can walk into a gallery and you know, you can walk into Tate Britain and you can see a Francis Bacon triptych and there's nobody there. It's unbelievable. And so you can go out and you can just look at some art that somebody's offered to you without knowing who you are. You weren't even in their minds. And you can look at that and it can change your day. And I find that music is the thing that does that more for me than anything else you know other people have other art forms but it does it for me very very strongly because music I feel touches, it expresses something within a human being that you can't express any other way, it's like it expresses your heart or your soul or your feelings, before you even know what they are, it's out there and to go to a gig, I find completely brilliant, you know, you can go to a gig and even if it's a bit rubbish, there's something about being at a gig and that noise and with the people, it just takes you right out of yourself and that I find really helpful. And anything you know, I mean have, you know, bad plays, brilliant. Go to see a bad play, because at least you'll have a right laugh afterwards going, That was absolutely terrible, I could have done better myself. Ooh God, that acting appalling, appalling. It's just something about taking yourself out of yourself, reading, that makes time stretch. And new experiences are very, very important when you're in your middle age because you tend to live your life on a routine and very fast and that will make your time go even faster. So you need to just do really basic things like change your sandwiches and the way you ought to work and get off a tube different or go to a different park just do something really small and that will change your life you know there's a woman I spoke to the other day and I was doing a talk at women's magazines and she put her hand up she said you know I really want to go away and it was somewhere like somewhere quite good like Thailand or Machu Picchu or something like that and she said but I'll be away for a month you know and I'm really worried about my career and I was like it's a month it's a month no one will notice. you are gone for a month and you'll do something that you will remember for the rest of your life, you know. And I think that if we can just remind ourselves that we can still do that and it doesn't have to be a month in Machu Picchu, it can be just literally an afternoon looking at art and that will change your head and those kind of things. And also, you can kind of choose to be happy and mostly, I choose to be happy, you know. That's what
1: I choose to do. So I've been talking to Miranda Sawyer, we've been talking about out of time, Midlife, if you still think you're young, which is out now from 4th Estate. Miranda, thank you so much for telling thank me about you, it. Thank you, Neil.
2: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
2: You can find the Little Atoms
1: podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.